Welcome to the Bradenville Church of Christ podcast. We are a family of believers striving to be the first century church in the 21st century. We're located at 285 Church Street in Bradenville, Missouri. Please join us for Bible study Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. with worship to follow at 11 a.m. Wednesday night Bible study is at 7 p.m. Now, please enjoy our lesson. The last two weeks we talked about evidences of God. If you were talking with somebody who had no knowledge of God or had no belief in God, how would you convince them? Excuse me. How would you convince them that God is real? And we talked about some evidences that exist. First off, that creation demands a creator. That every effect demands an adequate, appropriate, antecedent cause. We talked about the fact that design demands a designer. We talked about the fact that life demands a life giver. Morality demands a, a moral absolute. All, <clears throat> Jake, would you get me a cup of water? Thank you. <clears throat> um, those are evidences to the fact that a supreme, divine, eternal, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent God exists. A random explosion of material cannot explain the existence. There is water back there if anybody else would like one. Jacob's good at getting it. So. Just give him the high sign and he'll get you the water. Um, I don't think that helps. A Big Bang does not explain why we're here in existence. A, a mindless creative force does not explain all of the elements of nature, but a supreme, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipotent it means all-powerful, omnipresent God does. Well, what about Jesus? What evidence could we show to a person who may believe in God. They may believe in the creator of the universe, but they don't believe in Jesus Christ. You know, there's probably a, a majority of the people in the world that fall into that category more than they do in people who don't believe in God or that do believe in Jesus. And so as we think about the, the idea of sharing the gospel with people, sometimes we might have to, we may not need to explain to them who God is, but we may, may need to explain to them who the Godhead is and who in particular, who the Son is. So let me ask you this question. Why do you believe in Jesus? What evidence have you seen that has convinced you that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he came as God in the flesh, that he lived here on the earth, that he died, that he was resurrected, and he ascended back up in heaven? I'm convinced that you're here today because you have some level of faith in that gospel. But how would you share that? How would you, how would you give evidence to people who don't believe in Jesus that Jesus truly is the Son of God? That's what we want to wrestle with today. So I want to give you, um, this is not all the evidence, but I want to give you some to consider. And I, I really want to encourage you to write these into your heart or put them into your brain. So that whenever you're talking with other people, you can you can show them, hey, these are some evidences that Jesus Christ really is the Son of God. <clears throat> and sometimes, uh, sometimes it, it, it takes more convincing than other times. And sometimes it, once you get people past a few minor questions, they're good to go. But sometimes it takes a little work. And so we're going to look at some things 
that would give evidence to the fact that Jesus Christ is God, that he came in the flesh. And we're going to begin with truth number one. We covered some of this truth back around, well, on Easter when we talked about the resurrection. But the first thing we need to help people understand is that Jesus is real. There are a fair number of people that think Jesus was just a fictitious character that was created by a group of men who sat down together and they collectively wrote the Bible. Now, what's interesting about that, the Bible was written, not, not just not the Old Testament, but the New Testament was written over a period of about 60 years. And so you think about how long it would take to keep everybody's story straight as they were writing this lie. Well, that's, that seems pretty, um, seems pretty outlandish. But <clears throat> we can look to history we can look to the, the evidence of, of the Bible and of history to see that Jesus was a real person. Let me ask you this question. What year are we in? This is 2021. Based on what? 2021 years from what? Historians believe was the birth of Jesus. And so we think about the fact of how much impact G the life of Jesus has had on civilization, on the world. We count time by Jesus. And we can look at external sources to see that Jesus actually lived. Uh, when we did that sermon on the resurrection, I quoted to you from the book of Flavius Josephus. He was a Jewish historian, and he talked about the existence of Jesus, talked about that he was a real man, and that he really died. We read from a, a letter that Tacitus wrote, or excuse me, the history of Tacitus, a Roman historian, who talked about Jesus who died. And Pliny the, the Younger, a, a, a governor in the time of the Romans, wrote to Caesar at that time. And he talked about a Jesus who was alive and who had died. And so we can look at, at um, extra-biblical, outside of the Bible, historical evidence to the fact that Jesus lived and that he died. <clears throat> he was a real person. But we also have the evidence of the apostles. And if that evidence was to be entered into court, it would be... Well, a lot like a deposition, right? When, if you've ever been to court before, you, you may have been deposed by a lawyer. And you've got to go and you've got to sit and they'll ask you questions and you give the answers. That testimony that you give in a deposition is just as powerful as a testimony you would give if you're sitting in a witness stand. And we've got the deposition of several different men recorded for us in the scriptures. Men and women who are, testi who are testifying to the existence of Jesus. <clears throat> Look at John chapter, 1 John chapter 1. I've got a lot of... Uh, th this, is, this is different than the last two lessons. The last two lessons, we spent very little time in God's Word because we were looking at... Right, Joe? And that, that upset Joe because he likes to be in the Bible. We were looking at very little evidence from the Bible because we were talking about how would we prove to somebody outside of the Bible that God is real. Now we're going to look at the Scriptures. In 1 John chapter 1, John records for us... <clears throat> the truth of his message. John chapter 1, 1 John, excuse me, chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Now pause there just for a second. He talks about something that they've heard, something that they have looked on, something they've seen with their eyes, Something, something that they've handled with their hands. If you were going to try to describe something to somebody, 
to show that it was real, how would you tell them it was real? Well, I touched it. If it was something I could hear, I heard it, right? If it was something I could see, I saw it with my eyes, a bird sitting outside the window. If I tried to describe a bird to you, I would tell you those type of attributes. I probably didn't touch it, but I would describe those type of attributes to you about something that was real. John says these things are real, and here's who it is. It's he says the word of life. Now, if you've read the writings of John, which he's assuming that these people who are receiving the, this epistle have read, and we have as well, who's he talking about there? Go back to the Gospel of John, verse 1 of the very first chapter. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was with God in the beginning. All things were made through Him. And he talks there in verse 14 that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He's talking about Jesus. And John says, we saw Him. We heard Him. We handled him. The life was manifest, verse 2, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And true to our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. He's telling them, I'm writing to you about a real person who really lived and we saw and heard and handled. I've got noted on the first uh, second Peter chapter one, we could go over there and we could read something similar that Peter would write about Jesus. And in particular, he's writing about the transformation. We remember that story from Matthew chapter 14 when Jesus took Peter and James and John up on the mountain and was transformed, and they saw it. And Peter said, We were there, we saw it with our eyes when Jesus was transformed. And so these men are firsthand witnesses to the reality of Jesus. The first truth we have to understand about Jesus was he was real. And we can show people evidence that Jesus really lived and that he really died. And as we talked about on, on, on our Easter sermon, that he was really raised from the dead. And that gets more into a later point. But the first truth is Jesus is a reality. He really did live. Now the second thing is Jesus had influence. It might be a case where somebody might live and they might die and they may never have influenced anybody and we can maybe go back and find their grave, but we would find no other evidence that person was alive. Um, why do we go to the cemeteries on Memorial Day? It's to remember those people who went before us, right? And yet you go to the cemetery and what do you see sometimes? See, sometimes you just see a rock there that has no name on it. And that person had influence when they were on the earth. But now they're gone. And nobody knows who they are. And their influence is lost. You know, Jesus' influence has never been lost. Jesus had influence when he was alive, and he still has influence today. We talked about the, the influence that he had on time. We count our time by him. But you think about the other influence that Jesus had. Think about the, the, the words that Jesus spoke and how they influenced the world. What's the golden rule? You know, people out in the world, they may not even know who Jesus is, but they've heard of the golden rule. You treat people the way you want to be treated, right? 
You think about some of the sayings that Jesus had that people are still influenced by today. Even though they're not, maybe they may not be a believer in Jesus, they may not even be familiar with the, with the scriptures. But Jesus left the world a better place for him being here. Think about the apostles and the influence that Jesus had on them. <clears throat> Picture yourself as Peter or Andrew, and you're in a boat. That's your job. You're a fisherman. And Jesus comes up and says, Come and follow me, and I'm going to make you fishers of men. What would you do? Would you get up out of that boat, and would you follow Jesus, or would you stay there and continue to fish? <clears throat> Think about the influence that Jesus had on those men. They left their jobs. They left their professions to go and follow Jesus. James and John did the same thing. They left their dad in the boat. That's what's interesting to me. Zebedee's in the boat with them, and they get, Dad, I'm sorry. we got to go. Matthew left a tax collector's off booth to follow Jesus. As we talked about earlier, Simon left a group of zealots to go follow Jesus. Jesus had influence on these people. And not just the twelve, but we can read how he had influence on them. There were many disciples who followed him. But there were many more disciples that just were, their lives were different because of Jesus. And because of the things that he did. <clears throat> We've noted here Matthew chapter 4 verse 19. John chapter 6 verse 27 and 29. John chapter 6 is interesting because... In John 6, Jesus has just issued some very difficult teachings. He's told them there, unless you eat my flesh and you drink my blood, you'd have no part in me. And he's talking in a spiritual context. He's talking there about spiritual truth. But the people hear that, and they're overwhelmed by that. Because we're not cannibals. We're not going to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And, and John records for us in John 6 that many of his disciples left him when he preached that. When he taught that teaching, they left him and they followed him after not in, in, they, they, they didn't follow after him anymore. Jesus turns to his apostles and says, Would you leave me also? And they said, Where are we going to go? You're the only one that has the words of life. That's the influence that Jesus had, had on the apostles. He had, they had seen not just his, his being, but they had seen the influence that he had. <clears throat> Think about the influence that Jesus had on the Samaritan woman. John chapter 4. When Jesus was there at that well near Sychar in Samaria, and he told that woman, give me a drink. And you remember the conversation that issued from that. And how it comes to the conclusion, and he tells her, I am the Christ. I'm the Messiah that, that, that the world's looking for. And she goes, and she goes back into town, and she tells everybody, come see a man who told me all I ever did. Jesus had influence. And he influenced people for good. Think about the adulterous woman in John chapter 8. A woman who's brought before Jesus to be stoned. The Jewish leaders brought her there. And they said, we caught this woman in adultery. In the very act of adultery. The law says she should be put to death. What do you say? And you remember what Jesus did. John chapter 8, he stoops down and he begins to write in the, in the dust on the ground. And the scriptures don't record for us what he wrote. But that action and what he wrote had some influence on those men. That when he stands up and he says, okay, whoever's without sin, let them cast the first stone. And they all, from the oldest to the youngest, began just to walk away. Think about the influence that Jesus had on those men. But also on that woman. Woman, where are thy accusers? I have none. Neither do I accuse you. I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. What a wonderful day that would have been for that woman. What a wonderful life that would have been for her. 
No, she didn't have to live that lifestyle anymore. Jesus had cut her free from sin, and she didn't have to do that. Whether it was a profession or whether it was just a, a, a way of life, she didn't have to live that way anymore. Jesus had great influence. We can talk about the influence that, that he had on the Jewish leaders. John chapter 12, verse 42 and 43 talks about the fact that there were many scribes, there were many Jewish leaders who believed in him. Now their problem was they didn't want to be kicked out of synagogues, and so they, they didn't profess their belief in Jesus. But they believed in him. Why was it that Jesus had influence? Because of what he taught and the way he taught it. He taught truth. And what's interesting about truth is, truth is easier for us to recognize than we probably realize. It's kind of like when we talked about goodness earlier. Goodness may be kind of hard to put into words, but you know it when you see it. And truth, in a lot of ways, is the same way. Jesus spoke the truth to people. He told them in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was an action that he was issuing. That's a command he was issuing to people to change their lives because the kingdom was coming. In Matthew chapter 5, then he, 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 he goes up on that mountain, he sits down, he begins to speak to the disciples. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And he goes through that Beatitudes. He describes there the characteristics of the citizen of the kingdom. Think about the influence that had on people to tell them, I don't have to live the way the scribes and the Pharisees live. I don't have to live the way that they dictate to us. I can live a higher plane. I can live a more righteous life even than they. Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. That was blasphemy to those Jewish leaders because they thought they were on the top rung, right? And Jesus says, you can go higher. Because you've heard it said of old, don't murder. You shall not commit murder, right? But I say to you, if you hate a brother without cause, you've already committed murder in your heart. You've heard it said of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you look on a woman to lust after, you've already committed adultery in your heart. You, think, you see what Jesus is doing there? He's raising their thoughts. He's elevating their mind. He's bringing them up to a plane that puts them on plane with the, the kingdom of heaven. That's the influence that Jesus had. Scribes and Pharisees didn't teach that way. They taught line by line, letter by letter. They taught the exact requirements of the law, but they couldn't elevate their mind because they weren't elevated there. They, you can't take somebody to a place you've never been to before. It's like driving cattle, right? But they've never been there before. And so we get to the end of Acts chapter 7, and we see the influence that Jesus has here. Acts chapter 7, why did it say that? Matthew chapter 7, Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> Where Jesus issues that that very interesting, uh, very powerful imagery of the wise man and the foolish man. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rains descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. 
But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does do them, I, does not do them, I would liken to a foolish man who built his house on the rock, and the rains descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. There's, in a nutshell, the power of Jesus' words. Because they were words you could act on. They were words that you could take to heart and you could put to practice in your life. And you see the result. Look at verse 28. And so it was when Jesus had ended these things that the people were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Kind of put a check mark beside that word authority because we're going to come back to that in just a little bit. Jesus taught in a way that people could understand and respond to. Sometimes they didn't always respond positively. But he taught very clearly so they could, they could act upon it. Jesus had influence. Now, some people will look at Jesus and they say, well, yeah, he had influence. He was a good moral teacher. Some of the major religions of the world that are not Christianity will say, well, Jesus was a good moral teacher, but that's really all it was. There's some fallacy to that, to that idea. And the fallacy has to do with truth number three. If Jesus was just a good moral teacher, he was also a liar or a lunatic. Because Jesus also claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be God in the flesh. And unless we recognize Jesus as God in the flesh, he can't just be a moral teacher or he is also a liar. Or he's out of his mind. He's schizophrenic in some way. Because truth number three is Jesus was divine. He was God in the flesh and is God. He, his, his life was not only a life to influence, but it was a life to, to save mankind. Consider these evidences to the divinity of Jesus. First thing we see that testified to the identity of Jesus as God in the flesh was the fact that he performed miracles. Now, miracles had been performed. You can go all the way back to the beginning of the Old Testament. You can read through. You can see that God worked through men miraculously at various times. But nobody performed miracles on the scale and magnitude that Jesus performed. That's what made him so astounding. That's why people marveled at the miracles they performed because they could read the Old Testament they could see that these were not the same as the miracles that Elijah performed or Elisha. He healed the sick. Matthew chapter 8. When he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make him clean. Then Jesus put his hands put out his hands and touched him, saying, I am willing to be cleansed. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. You didn't touch a leper in those days. It was contrary to the law of Moses to touch a leper. And yet Jesus had the power to heal the leprosy. That's the, that's the power that God has when he comes in the flesh. He had the power to heal. You go on down in chapter 5. And you're going to see that he's going to heal a centurion servant. He's going to heal Peter's mother-in-law, verse 14. And verse six, 16 says, And when evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were sick, 
that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, that he took him, he himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. Jesus' miracles testified to his identity. Jesus also had the ability to control nature. We remember a time when he's on a ship and he's sleeping and a storm blows up and it scares the apostles, it scares his disciples, right? Master, are you sleeping? Don't you care that we're about to drown? You remember that? And Jesus with the word, peace be still, he calms the storm. They marveled at that. Because they had seen him feed the 4,000 just a little while before and they knew he had power over bread, but this guy has power over wind. He can control the waves. The miracles of Jesus were astounding, both to his followers and to the people not around him. And I've got a lot more quoted on there. Just for the sake of time, we don't have time to go through all these scriptures, but I've given you plenty to go back and look at so you can use this to help other people if you're studying with them about the identity of Jesus. But in particular, I want to know he raised the dead. Luke chapter 7, verse 11, we see him raising the widow of Nain's son. In Matthew chapter 5, we see him raising Jairus. That's not right. That's Mark chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 is a sermon on the mount. Mark chapter 5, he raises Jairus' daughter, the ruler of the synagogue. And of course, we remember in John chapter 11, whenever he shows up at the tomb of Lazarus four days late by the minds of the people there, right? It breaks my heart to hear Mary and Martha both say to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus tells him, I am the resurrection and the life. He rolls, has the stone rolled away, and he hollers into that grave, in that tomb, Lazarus come forth, Lazarus comes forth bound. Jesus had power over the grave. He had power over Sheol and the tomb and Hades. He had the ability to bring people back from that. And so we see his miracles testify to his divinity. We also see that his wisdom Testified to his, his identity and also to his divinity. Matthew chapter 22. You read in verses 15 through 46. That's a long passage. We won't read it all. But if you go to that, you would see there that they're going to test. The, the, the rulers of the Jews are going to come and test Jesus. The first ones are going to be the Pharisees. And they're going to ask Jesus. They're going to, they're going to say, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? You know, we wrestled with that a little bit last, last fall, right before the election, right? What's our, what's our responsibility to government? It's essentially what they're asking. And Jesus told them, you render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, you render to God the things that are God's. Think about the wisdom that's in that. They were trying to catch him in an either or. You either do pay taxes or you don't pay taxes. Neither one of them they were going to turn around and use it to beat him about the head and neck with. And Jesus just says, you pay your taxes what's right, but you also honor your life with God, to God. The, scribe, the, excuse me, the Sadducees come to him and they want to know about the resurrection. They didn't even believe in the resurrection, but they're going to ask him a question about the resurrection. And they, they, they put this straw woman up, this woman who's been married to seven different men. They said, okay, in the resurrection, whose husband is she going to be? And he says, you don't know anything. You, you, don't know, you don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. When we're raised up in the resurrection, our marriage relationship isn't going to be the same. We're going to be like the angels, Jesus says. The, the relationships that we have on earth are not going to be binding on us in the resurrection. Essentially, tell them there. We see that the, the scribe comes to him and wants to know what's the first and greatest commandment. 
And this is probably the most honest of all of them because when Jesus gives him the answer, he says, well said, you're right. But the wisdom that Jesus, that Jesus portrays, the wisdom that Jesus uh, confesses is a wisdom that comes from God because he was God in the flesh. We see that the fact that Jesus fulfilled prophecy was also a testimony to his identity as God in the flesh. There were 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that were made about the Messiah. All the way from the fact that he would be conceived of a virgin, which is interesting. I never had really thought of this until I was reading commentary on, on Genesis chapter 3. You remember the you remember the statement that God made? I think we used this a couple weeks ago. The statement that God made to the serpent whenever he was cursing the serpent. He says, you're going to crawl on your belly. You're going to eat the dust of the ground. Uh, and then he makes a statement about the seed of Eve. He says, you're going to bruise his heel and he's going to crush your head. You know what he didn't say there? God didn't say the seed of Eve and Adam. He just said the seed of Eve when he made that prophetic statement about Jesus. We turn over to Isaiah chapter 7 and we read in Isaiah 7 about a, a child who would be born of a virgin. We can turn to Micah chapter what is it, Micah chapter uh, 5 and we see that he was going to be born in Bethlehem. And some people will say, well, I've read this before. Well, Jesus, he was aware of these prophecies, and so he lived his life in a way to fulfill the prophecies. Tell me how you fulfill prophecy being born in Bethlehem. How do you plan that out? How do you, how do you structure your life before you're even born to fulfill prophecy? And yet there are over 300 prophecies speaking about the way he would live his life. And in particular, how he would die. I don't know how an honest heart can read Psalm 22 and not be cut by the prophetic statements that are made there about the suffering Savior on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from me? Talk about we read in there about the fact that he was encircled by the bulls of Bashan, that, that they would gape at him with their mouths and they would cry to him. He, he trusted in God. Let him save him if he'll have him. And you can go over to Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. You can read almost those exact words expressed by the Jewish leaders. They divided his clothes and they cast lots for his garments. And the gospel writers record that for us. How do you control that? How do you set up a situation where you make that happen? Except the fact that it fulfills prophecy. That, that's what Jesus' life was intended to be. And we've got there Zechariah chapter 11 verse 13 which speaks about the fact that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. And Isaiah chapter 53, the purpose of his death. We'll read just a short section of that just to remind ourselves of why Jesus died on the cross. Sorry, I took me longer to get that one, I think. 
He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. Who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living, and for the transgressions of my people he was stricken. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All that was a prophetic image of the suffering Savior that Jesus fulfilled when he died on the cross. And so we see fulfillment of prophecy as another testimony to his divinity. But what about his assertion that he was God in the flesh? Some people will say, well, Jesus never said he was God. Well, that's not accurate. first thing we notice is that Jesus accepted worship. He accepted acknowledgement as being God. In John chapter 1 verse 49, whenever Nathaniel comes to him and, he, and Jesus there, he says, Behold an Israelite in, him, in, him, in whom is no guile. Nathaniel says, How do you know me? Jesus says to him, Before you came and saw me, I saw you under that, under that fig tree. And the thing that says, you are the Son of God. You are the Messiah. Jesus recognizes that. He doesn't deny that. We can jump to the other end of the book in John chapter 20 and verse 28. Whenever Jesus is not present, whenever Thomas comes into the room the first time, Thomas doesn't believe that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And so that's why Thomas is often referred to as Doubting Thomas, right? But Jesus makes it very clear to him. Verse 27, Reach your finger here and look at my hands, and reach your hand there and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. If Jesus was not God in the flesh, that would have been blasphemy. And it would have been wrong for Jesus not to rebuke Thomas for saying that. But he doesn't. Because Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus' acceptance of worship is, is testimony to the fact that he is divine, but also the fact that Jesus had the ability to forgive sins. Matthew chapter 9, when, when the, the four men bring that paralytic in and they tear the roof off the house and they drop him down, and Jesus sees their faith, not just the faith of the paralytic, but he sees the faith of the men who brought this, this man to him. You remember what he says to him first? He doesn't say, rise and walk. He says, son, your sins are forgiven you. Jewish leaders there, they say, they kind of reason in their hearts, they don't know say it out loud. Who, who but God has the power or the authority to forgive sins? Jesus knows what they're thinking. He says, uh, let me ask you a question. Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven, which you can't see an external physical evidence of that, right? It's just, that's, that's a spiritual result. That's a spiritual effect of a spiritual cause, but we can't see that. Or is it easier to say, arise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He turns to the man and says, arise and walk. What does that do? That testifies to the fact that he has the authority to forgive sin. Who has authority to forgive sin but God? They were right in asking that question. 
They were just wrong assuming that Jesus wasn't God. Jesus had the authority. We can see that also in John chapter 8 when he speaks with the, the adulterous woman. Jesus had the authority to condemn that woman as God in the flesh, but he said, I don't condemn you. I came to save you. Go and sin no more. We see there that he spoke of the God in heaven as, as his, his father. Matthew chapter 10, verse 32. He who confesses me before men, I will confess before my father in heaven. And you remember the prayer that Jesus offered in the garden. Abba, Father. The term of a, of a child. The term a child would use in speaking about their father. Abba, Father. If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Why did Jesus call him Father? Because he was his Father. Jesus was the Son. And the Hebrew writer tells us that as his Son, he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Jesus was God in the flesh. Jesus also had the testimony of the Father himself. As being the son. You remember when Jesus was baptized. John baptized Jesus. And he came up out of the water. And the spirit descended like a dove. And lit upon Jesus. And you remember the testimony that came from heaven. This is my beloved son. In whom I am well pleased. Same testimony was offered on the Mount of Transfiguration. When Jesus took Peter and James and John. We've already mentioned that. They went up on the Mount. Jesus transfigured. Peter's kind of overwhelmed by that. He doesn't know what to say. So he says, hey, should we make three tabernacles? One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah? And the voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son in whom I will please hear him. God testified from heaven to the identity of Jesus. So we see here that Jesus had these testimonies, miracles, wisdom, prophecy, the assertions, of God in the flesh here. But the final one I want to note is the fact that he had authority. It's one thing to say that you have this or you are this. Just like whenever Jesus gave the example when he said your sins are forgiven you. And they rightly, I would say they rightly reasoned in their mind who has authority to forgive sin but God. And he says, okay, I'm going to prove it to you. How did Jesus have all of this? It's because God gave him the authority to say these things. Matthew chapter 28 ends with these words. Jesus was with his disciples. They, uh, he's about to ascend into heaven. And he's going to commission them. He's going to give them a job. And he's going to give them authority. But, you know, I can only give you authority if I have the authority to give, right? I can't tell you to do something that I don't have the authority to do myself. And so Jesus, he, he's going to give them the gospel. He's going to give them the good news to take out to the world. But he has to put his authority behind it. And so he says in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Let me ask you this question. Do any of you have authority in heaven? We may be authorized to preach the gospel here by Jesus on earth, but he's never given us any authority in heaven. How do you have authority in heaven unless you're God? In flesh. 
Jesus here had authority in heaven and on earth. And so he told his disciples, he said, I want you to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. There's authority, right? Lord, with you all, with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus had authority. If Jesus was a if Jesus was making these claims and they weren't true, he's gotta be a liar. Or he's gotta be out of his mind. And that makes us question of well, why would we even be here? But the fact that Jesus did do these things, the fact that he did say these things, the fact that they have been written down for us and recorded for us, and we can we can trust them today is the fact that he's not a liar, he's not a lunatic, he is Lord. That's the most important thing we can help people understand when we're sharing the gospel with Jesus. Is they may come to realize that he's real, that he really lived. They may recognize that he has influence. They may even be willing, some people may even be willing to admit that he is God in the flesh. But until we submit to his authority, we're living in rebellion to God. That's the, real, that's the real nutshell of the gospel, isn't it? The gospel is not just a good story. The gospel is a message that demands our obedience. It demands a response. Have you submitted to the gospel today? The death and the burial and the resurrection, that's the story of the gospel. Jesus came and he came to this earth world to live a life of perfection, which he did. To set an example for us, which he did, but also to die on the cross so that our sins could be forgiven, that we could be made a part of the family of God, that we could have a home in heaven awaiting us whenever this world comes to an end. And his direction to his disciples was going to preach that message to all creatures. Mark chapter 16, verse 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. You know who I am? I'm a creature. You're a creature. Those who have the ability to hear and receive and respond to the gospel are the, the essence of what he's speaking about there. And then he goes on to say this. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. Have you, uh, have you obeyed the gospel of Jesus? Have you done what Jesus says you need to do to be saved? We need to understand that. We need to appreciate it. We need to obey it before we can take it to share it to other people. And so that's the, that's the, the invitation that's brought for today. If you know that you're outside the body of Christ and you haven't obeyed the gospel, we want to encourage you today to think about the importance of obeying the gospel by your faith, your, your acceptance of Jesus as the Son of God, your willingness to confess that name, your faith in Jesus before Mankind, as we saw in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32. Your willingness to turn away from sin. That's an important aspect that we don't want to overlook. Repentance is not just a one-time deal. Repentance is a lifestyle. But it's an acknowledgement that my sins have separated me from God, and I want to put those away from me. It's a change of heart, which results in a change of mind. Change of mind results in a change of heart, let's say it that way. That results in a change of life. That I don't live that lifestyle anymore. Because I'm a Christian. And we're going to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit by the authority of Jesus and raised up to walk in Jesus' life. Have you done that? Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. For more information about our church family, 
please visit our Bradleyville Church of Christ Facebook page. We hope to see you soon. Till then, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. We hope you have a good day.